If you love the podcast and you want other valuable tools, resources, and coaching that will ignite the fire in you to go to the next level, then look, make sure you jump on the other various platforms we have, absolutely our YouTube channel, uh, Alex Ranieri, and in there you'll find the opportunity to have different coaching and resources and tools and tips, including our podcast episodes in video form, which a lot of people get value from too. But make sure you have a look at everything that we have to offer. High Performance Father is something that is a phenomenal movement that I'm very proud of. Uh, it's something that I love in this message that continually grows and it grows in more fashions and ways than just the podcast but i appreciate you tuning into this podcast with a couple hundred thousand downloads now it's just incredible so thank you very much enjoy this episode but make sure you do go and use the other tools and the other valuable resources that we have welcome to another podcast episode we've got a phenomenal guest today definitely one of the rarer ones um and i can say that confidently after 220 episodes we've got mr nathan wallace with us and uh, well, firstly, before I do a bit of an intro, welcome, Nathan. Great to have you on here, mate. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks <laughs> for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, mate, I'm excited. I know we just had a chat before we before we hit record, but I was uh, those who are listening to this won't be able to see. But some of those clocks you've got there, mate, it's just it's just incredible. Um, we talk about the concept of time and whatnot, and there's some pretty cool looking clocks you have there, mate. Oh yeah, cheers. It's a Doctor Who finish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so good. But um, look, those who are listening to this. Uh, most of our listeners are men. However, men, I will get you to absolutely provide the opportunity to your your wives to listen to this as well. This is going to be a fascinating episode where yeah. we're talking with a man who's done 25 years of neuroscience research and over 200. I mean, I, I had to read that twice. I was like, wow, over 250 times a year, this man is doing events. Um, not just yeah. in New Zealand, but also internationally, which is incredible. Um, your own TV show, Kids Don't Come With a Manual. Um, yeah, that's new. That's uh, very, very cool. So the reason why I want you men to also get your wives to listen to this is there's going to be a lot of value in a bit of an overview. This is just the start of what I believe will be a, a great experience for all of you men who are plugged in or connected to HPF in some way where Nathan Wallace and, and essentially his process on not only the first thousand days of your child's life and what that looks like in, I guess, defining or navigating their future, but also breaking down the stages of life because we all know men that it changes physically, psychologically, parenthood, fatherhood, us as men undoing our own best, our own trauma. That's what I really love about neuroscience, which attracted me and drew me into into you and your world, Nathan, to really, um, yep. I, guess, I guess for those listening, get a bit of an overview on what Nathan does, 250 yeah, events a year, TV show. He's a father of three and a, and a foster parent as well himself. And, you know, it's something that I, I think you guys should be uh, really excited to listen to over the next 45 minutes or so, as well as probably share with your wife to help you not only get an understanding on where things may be on the certain stage and journey of yourself, your own brain, how it's wired, but also your children, but potentially maybe a couple of tools, tips, and uh, tricks, maybe not tricks, but a cool tool, tips, tools of the trade. Tricks are all right too. <laughs> Trick, couple of tricks that uh, yeah. you might be able to apply to your life as well. But yeah. Nathan, I'm excited, mate. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. I think if I do my job properly, um, that getting the, the wives to listen will be relatively easy. Because if the man's amped, and she seems to be ignited by it, then she's going to want to know what that's about. So she'll come of her own accord to have a look. That's been my experience. So I've just got to do my job well and get the name. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Because, uh, well, unless there's men listening out here, you just want to keep the secrets to yourself so that, you, you know, the children, you become the favourite instead of your wife. But, but uh, yeah. that's, um, yeah. Awesome. I'd love to, I, I guess, start with... Um, yeah, yourself, mate, and and what led you into this space? Because it's quite a fascinating space. But yeah, what what brought us to be here today, where you've got 
you know, 25 years of experience in this field. And yeah, what led to this being your journey, Nathan? Um, yeah, I think I just gravitate. I mean, I've become a teacher because I'd always like children and I like interacting. I like people. So, um, uh, yeah. And when I was a teacher, very quickly, I worked out it was the naughty kids I really liked the most and I was fascinated with and had empathy with and, you know, thought, and, you know, I thought it was a naughty kid myself. So, you know, I was in foster care and things and um, I could um, resonate with those kids. And um, so I ended up, you know, going back to university, doing more qualifications, just so I could work specifically with the naughty kids rather than having to, you know, teach 25 other ones. Um, and, then, and then it was really the age I was at, too, because brain development, the 1990s, the decade of the brain, right place at the right time, really. You know, right there at the burgeoning. So I'd been running parenting groups for a while and did lots of different group facilitation. But I'd always been fascinated in the neuroscience, you know, part of my um, undergraduate study. And it was part of my first job was um, being quite involved in brain development. And I just loved it. I loved the um, solidity of it. Like, you know, um, you know, there's a, like teaching is a bit of an art form, you know, and um, social, emotional well-being can seem a bit abstract. Whereas now we've got brain scans that tell us, you know, that stuff in concrete terms. I think it's like a, you know, a, a, a social science. It has meaning, you know, connects with people meaningfully social part but it's got some solidity to it you know there's science behind it and i just like the reassurance of that mm. it's a valuable so, yeah. it's a valuable thing in today's world mate where there's a lot of um <clears throat> subjective truths so to speak in, in position position of people yeah 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 people um really listen with their limbic system people think you know we've got a frontal cortex it's the home of higher intelligence and people think that's where we live but really we live mainly underneath of the emotional brain the frontal cortex is just a toolbox that we go to when we need language or when we need, you know, to justify an emotional, you know, a decision that we made. Basically, we live from our emotional brain and people quite easily will just believe what they want to believe. Very interesting, isn't it too? Yeah, I, I, mate, I totally get that. Most as, as men, I guess historically it seems like we're more um, logically wired or I guess less emotionally volatile than women to a degree or I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you you would know the hard science of that, but I'm just observing. Well, it's interesting that men, <laughs> yeah, men's brains, the, the emotional part of the brain, the amygdala, you know, essentially, is about usually about 20% larger in men. So that might, uh, I think a man's problem is about the corpus callosum. That's the bridge that joins the left and the right-hand brain. Like if I had your brain in my hands, you'd see it's not a ball. It's, it moves in two halves and it's joined by this band of fibers called the corpus callosum. And that's why they say women can multitask because they've got a much denser corpus callosum than we have. You know, if you think of it as a road that connects the left and the right-hand brain, um, then women have it like a six-lane highway, you know, whereas men, in comparison, have like a bloody swing bridge at the back, you know, with planks missing in the swing bridge. So men, men tend to stay on the left-hand side of the brain and only go to the right-hand side of the brain about 5% of the time, women about 30% of the time there. So what I'm trying to say is we think men are less emotional, but actually um, suicide statistics would suggest that we're more emotional. And, you know, like, it's not just me. And, you know, I know I'm very emotional, but when I get with men, especially in a men-only environment, they're all really emotional. And so, you know, I think that's, I think we just don't have the structures in our brain to regulate that emotion very well. So we have strong emotion and the structures not to regulate it. Shit. I think you guys will need to listen and watch this a few times because I certainly will because that's phenomenal. And, and I guess what I'm gathering from that, Nathan, is there's, does that mean there's a potential that the regulation of expressing emotions is more accessible through and with women because of the six lane yeah. highway as opposed to men. However, what you're saying absolutely makes sense to me, A, because of the men that we have on the inside with HPF and the bringing down of the walls and B, I look yeah. at this from a primal power point of view. You look at anger, rage, all these things that led to survival. That's an incredible yeah. explosive force that 
you're right, mate. Men might not tap yeah. into it as frequently, but it's absolutely there, and it makes sense that it would would be larger. Yeah. That's um, fuck, that's yeah. unreal. That's uh, oh yeah, goosebumps. I think me and yeah, for, for a long time, men were out, um, yeah, <clears throat> fighting and hunting and stuff. You know, you basically uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, that's a generalization. A woman are at home doing childcare. You need a brain that can regulate your emotion when you have twelve kids. You know, if you stay at home with two kids, you need a family. You know, drives you mental. So twelve kids would like you know you have to have twelve kids in order for two or three of them to survive for most of history. So um, you know they needed a brain that could regulate their emotions, whereas men to be warriors needed a brain. You know you don't want your warriors to regulate their emotion. You want them to be going and charging for it, and you know full full force. Yeah, and and this is the thing too. What you just mentioned then, like um, we we talk and it's nothing against men or women, but there's obviously from what you're sharing right now, there's predispositions to a role that a female will obviously be more, be more equipped to. And we see that traditionally. I just came back from a holiday in Fiji and it's, again, nothing against men or women. doesn't say that women can't work or a man can't spend time with his child. However, in this tribe, because we went to a real local native place, the women were doing the quote-unquote women things and doing them extremely well and the men were doing the men things. And uh, is that what you're saying? Like I guess that's how our brain's wide as well, which is why we tend to... No, it's not as hard as that. It's not as hard as that. Like when we talk about the male and female brain, there's some differences, but it's like a spectrum. Every part of the brain that we could say a male brain, there'll be females at the edge of the bell curve that have that and vice versa. So you don't, it is really a spectrum. You know, it's, yes. um, yeah, but like mosaic is the theory, the actual word that they use, mosaic theory, that we're a mosaic. If you, we did all the psychological tests on you, you would find out that, you know, you might be 64% classified as a male in your thinking and, you know, the rest in female. Um, you, you, you know, you might be more empathetic. Empathy is considered a female trait, but you as a person might be quite much more empathetic than, you know, 30% of the woman population, even though their brains are wired up for it. So you can't say empathy is just a female thing. It's really that all things are both genders. I mean, we are 50% of each after all. None of us are pure male and pure female. Yes. <laughs> We've both got one pair of each. Yeah, it makes sense. So there, there would be, there's, so there's a range where, uh, you know, I guess a, a traditional sense would be masculinity and femininity where obviously yep. I know there's some feminine inside of me, but then that's where we would see some men who passive probably isn't the word, but they would tend to be more feminine. And then there are women yep. who, who do seem to be more, I guess, dominant, but more masculine, right? That's what yeah. you're saying. There is a range where, you know, Absolutely. there are some women who could potentially. So it's just normal really that people don't have a man and a woman. That, yeah. That's the bipolar idea we've got is yes. that it is a spectrum and that, um, yeah. But generally, men clustered on that end for most of their traits, and women clustered on that end for most of their traits. But yeah, Bloody even 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 looking your brain, that corpus callosum that I just talked about, this, that, that's responsible for not just regulating emotion, but for um, lots of multitasking. And if a boy learns a musical instrument, starts to learn a musical instrument formally before the age of seven, it, it increases the density of his corpus callosum. That it's, it's basically the same as a female. So you could then speculate. It doesn't happen after seven because you've got to have a reasonable degree of neuroplasticity. It's always beneficial, but you're not going to see the same increase in the corpus callosum. Mm. You have to start the formal stuff before seven. But that was fascinating to me because that just shows how pliable the brain is. That we can take that very female trait and then regulate your emotions. It's related to brain, and it's an oversimplification. I've got to say, we're not. It's not just the corpus callosum. You know, you, you just simplify it down. I'm simplifying it down so we can have the conversation. Obviously, everything but the brain is a whole network. You know, yes, it's always a network of things. Um, but yeah, that's that easy. We can basically make a boy's brain as good as a female. So we teach him a musical instrument in the first seven years. So the uh, piano lessons I took as a little boy paid off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, females have a lower suicide rate than us, a lower criminal rate. They seem to be able to regulate their emotions a whole lot easier. 
So, yeah, teach our boys a musical instrument before seven, they could have a whole lot easier life. Mm. Easier, you know. We need to be able to regulate our emotions now. We've got more more depression than there was during the Great Depression. Because, you know, anxiety is mm. growing every year. Like regulating your emotions is becoming a real skill set. Is that due to a saturation thing, though, as well, because of technology and what we're exposed to potentially? Like it's a. a yeah, I think we're also, yeah, we're also starting faster and faster and we're processing faster and faster. Mm. You just have to look at a television show like, you know, from this black and white and how slowly the whole show move and they you know we would have five shows in that time you know like um, from action 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 and now the internet speed everything up and now we've got cell phones with instant communication and i see it with the teenagers that i work with and, and we do have you know a greater degree of adaptability we've adapted every other generation you know every generation has always thought oh my god this generation is going to go to wreck and ruin but each generation manages to survive and i think they're pretty great Fascinating, isn't it? So, whilst it's a benefit that there's that that neuroplasticity or the ability to the for the brain to um to adapt and evolve, uh, there's also that that caution on, I guess, how it would adjust when. Like, I look at the you talk about um you know the black and white being slow, yeah. With a response rate of three seconds, people could be exposed to in just ten minutes of scrolling TikTok or something like hundreds of like that's that stimulus. And I can't say it's a fact. I remember seeing um someone in a similar space talking about an 80 year old a hundred years ago has seen less than what a 12 year old sees today. And I'm like, yeah, full life. And you've got a prepubescent, like it's yeah, 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 yeah. Crazy. I, I mean, that summarizes it really, doesn't it? About how, how many lives are living in one life because information and everything's just so fast. And we're paying a price for that because we are, you know, it's a multifaceted thing though. I think we also don't live in our tribal groups. So, you know, if, um, just when I was a child in the 1970s, when I was growing up, um, 80% of people lived in the same region as their grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff. Now it's about 25%. So that makes for a very different, those sorts of things help you to regulate your anxiety. Tribes so, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Some, some fundamental things. It's, it's probably yeah. still in It's there. things we've lost, not just things that we've added. We've added the internet and we've added, you know, um, cell phones, but um, we've lost having grandparents. Grandparents used to, but grandmothers never used to work. You know, complete, you know, their job was to be a grandmother. That's a huge help to the family unit. Now you've got both parents working and Nana's working as well. And we have a lot of perfect parent as well. Um, you know, that want to have good experiences. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard you, hear, you hear some of those old sayings like uh take takes a tribe or a village to raise and, and they seem to be lost and and but it's like what you mentioned then is just that I guess that that cohesion and stability as well to a degree, possibly, like you said, things that we've yeah, absolutely. Got. Mm-hmm volatility of technology we've started a pretty uh some some pretty high, high level stuff hope you boys are enjoying this certainly excited me i guess two two things quickly mate one mm-hmm. um which i think you've probably answered <clears throat> can we change it even as an adult can we rewire our brain and change and adjust and like is it really that you know is, is that um that malleable and um yeah, I guess secondly, it really is yeah yeah i mean it's incredible we're living in the age of neuroplasticity in some ways because even 20 years ago we didn't think so much you know about that because we could predict a lot of your outcomes with a high degree of you know accuracy from the age of three so that suggested there wasn't a lot of neuroplasticity but now we understand that as we learn more about neuroplasticity that that's because most people don't receive an intervention if you've led a life of abuse and neglect and torture for the first you know three years of your life um you normally continue that until you're 18 there isn't a magic thing that comes in and sweeps you away and takes you to a nice home so the reason most of those kids can have their outcomes predicted was because their pathway wasn't changed, not because they were set. So now we understand we've got way more neuroplasticity than we thought. It's actually incredible. It sort of blows my mind just how much that what we think is what happens. You know, like um, 
yeah, I mean, I don't want to lose people in the science, but, you know, your brain is based, everything that's seeing right in front of you is 93% prediction. Only 7% of it is light, you know, pixels hitting the light in your eyes and giving you information. Because your brain's learned a long time ago, that's not efficient to keep checking if the roof is still there. Because you've learned to predict the roofs don't disappear and reappear. So you're just, you know, predicting that that's there. So when you, when you start to take all those mundane predictions together, it's not hard to work out. But 93% of what you're seeing in front of you is prediction. Only 7% is left for if there's any novelty. If the roof does disappear, you'll probably notice it. Because, you know, that, that's, that, what that means is that everybody is seeing their story. You know, people think that they have a video camera in their head. That's fundamentally how we see ourselves. We're seeing this objective reality. And we don't have a video it's a, it's a fool, it's a story maker. And it will easily fool us. You know, the, the way I get parents to understand that you're not seeing what's really in front of you is that for all of your life, whenever your eyes are open, you can really see your nose. But why do you not see your nose? You know, because your brain um, goes, oh, well, that's a waste of time. I don't need that there. Not only does it make it disappear, but it replaces whatever is you're supposed to be able to see underneath your nose, um, you know, fills in the picture. So it's just an example of how we're, we're seeing what we predict to see. And another one is if you'd, um, you know, you, you get an Audi and suddenly it seems like every second car on the road is an Audi because now you're seeing that, you're paying attention to it. If you're, if you're pregnant, having a baby, it seems like you just see pregnant people everywhere you go, like you're paying attention to things. Did you see that classic video clip about they're doing a basketball game and you have to like take account how many balls or something? And with then the gorilla. Then, oh, that's yeah, right, yeah, with the gorilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it, yeah. And the gorilla goes, when I first watched that, I was like, oh, that's a different clip. That gorilla wasn't there the first time. I was adamant that I couldn't have, you know, missed a gorilla coming down the back of this game and waving. But um, that shows you that we are just choosing what to attend to, you know? Um, you so missed the gorilla. You didn't see him. No, not the first time. No, not at all. I completely fell. So much so that I thought they were having me on. I didn't believe it was the same clip they showed me the next time. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, that was a long time ago. Is it a, yeah, could, it was ruined for me, mate, because I, I found I had the answer before I got the chance to watch it the first time. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't want to ruin it for the guys listening or watching, but it's ah, oh, mate, yeah. that, isn't it unreal? Like when you, yeah. <laughs> but what that means is that we are a collection of our stories. Whatever story you tell yourself is what reality is. It's what you see. It's what you learn to predict. So I think that's fascinating. You know, like um, essentially, as humans, there isn't a subjective reality. There's our stories that we hold. Mm. Um, Everyone's got their own stories. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, you might think um, as an individual that you're um, altruistic, um, whereas, um, you know, 20 of your friends might think you're tight as. Like, you know, but you're still in your story that you're altruistic, not you. Yeah, I'm just saying in general. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. People have their story and they believe it. It doesn't matter if all their friends don't believe it, or, you know. Um, so technically, there's obviously a lot of versions. So there's Al's version of who Al is, but then yeah. there could be five thousand versions right. of who I am in their reality yeah. and how they see me. And it's yeah. um, <clears throat> mate, that's fascinating. Like I, I remember seeing. I'm not sure. I'd obviously love your your expertise on this, but I remember do seeing that. I'm not sure if you're talking about the conscious or subconscious. How it's like a computer where our conscious mind can operate at only 40 megabits per second, which is why it's not efficient for it to be processing everything, like you said, which means it fills the gaps in our subconscious is 40,000, a lot, lot more, which is, is that the underlying what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's two different concepts here because I'm talking about brain stuff and that's mind. The brain and mind are two different things. I mean, they overlap, obviously, Mm. but yeah. Mm. That that stuff you're that talking about. I, mean, I started out as a therapist, so I started out in that unconscious and stuff. I'm a huge um, fan of Jung's Carl Jung. He's like my favorite theorist. Mm. I've got his red book, 
up on the shelf, you know, like um, he just captivated me um, in university. Yeah. So, yeah. I think it's incredible stuff, mate. Like what you're sharing then, um, I remember we were talking off air, um, I mentioned Robert Lanza. That's the stuff he's talking about in Biocentrism yeah. with the double slit experiment, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Waves collapsing into particles. Like, yeah. You know, like I'm sitting here right now in the office talking to Nathan. My car technically doesn't exist. However, there's obviously a filling in the gap because my consciousness isn't there when I go there. It's not going to look at all the details and it's black and it's got this writing. It's just, is that partially what you mean in terms of like we're just filling in yep. the room and the space and it's just like, absolutely. It's yep. crazy. That's, and we're predicting, and what I'm trying to say is we're predicting our story. That means that we can change our story quite easy. I mean, it's talking about neuroplasticity. What I'm trying to say is it's real easy to tempt neuroplasticity. You just change your story. You know, but it's what you need to do to change that story. You can't just tell yourself, you know, if you've got um, underlying issues that, that have, you know, you're, what's that underlying issue? Um, attachment, you know, disorder, that you're, um, you know, you don't feel um, connected to people properly. Then you can't just change your story and go, oh, I'm going to feel connected now. You have to actually truly change your story and you have to really believe that you're actually, you have to believe you've gone through some cataclysmic or some appropriate, you know, change. But once you believe it, so it's getting people to you know believe the good stuff in their story. People focus on negative things. You know, I deal with lots of people with depression and anxiety, and they're oh what if, what if, and bad, bad, and and you try and tell them you're one of the best carpenters, and they say oh yeah, but yeah, but that, you know, there's the things that they're good at. They don't want to get any ear time to. Yeah, they want to spend all day talking about their anxiety. It's like if you just look at it from a mathematical point of view, if you're spending, you know, how many words today that come out of your mouth? Because your brain pays a lot of attention to what comes out of your mouth. The brain's basically voice activated. It ignores a lot of your thoughts because they contradict all the time, you know. You think you're gorgeous today, you thought you're ugly yesterday, you know, like they change all the time your thoughts, but you know, what it, you choose to articulate and come out of your mouth, the brain really listens to. So um, I try to say to people, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about your anxiety and managing your anxiety. You, you don't want to talk about your strengths and how good you are at stuff mm. and um, and how happy you can be and it feels fake. And I think, well, yeah, it does feel fake because you don't do it. But that's why you're depressed. So you need to make it not feel fake. And that takes practice. It just takes about 90 times of doing something before it starts feeling fake and it becomes what you know. You have to persevere with that. Is that partially, I guess, is, yeah, I'd love to to work a bit more on, on the how. Sounds to me like, I guess, a, a more consolidated, you hear things like, you know, law of attraction, whatnot. And it's not like think it and here's a Lamborghini, but people, no. but it is, but what you're saying is obviously there's, there's a lot that comes out. And I, um, I lost my lost my voice about nine months ago. And what you're saying, mate, is fascinating because through the adversities and everything I've gone through, I really yeah. vocalize like my strength and my power is, is not just communicating like this, but yep. I vocalize everything. I even I even have like a what I call a um war cry or battle cry where I'll I'll, I'll do affirmations yeah. outward and vocally, just from playing yeah. rugby over the years, um elite yep. sport and other things. And when I when I lost that. Mate, I couldn't believe the the mess that happened. It almost became this thing where even someone who had all these strengths, like you've mentioned, that we can yep. we all have. We, we if you're yeah. still here, you've racked up at least some wins. Everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. still Absolutely. here. But everything was just like, and it's like that yeah. that old adage: what you focus on becomes your reality. Which sounds like, yeah. But is that a survival mechanism? What is this? Because I hear that a lot. It is a survival mechanism. Focusing on on the bad and the threat and the danger. Yep. Is that like yep. where, where because that basically from? negative. Any negative feedback is going to give you way more of a buzz to the brain because negative feedback is a threat to your survival. Positive feedback isn't. So when someone says, oh, your hair looks nice today, that does not give you anywhere near the same brain reaction as when someone goes, um, you know, you look stupid. Because it gives a, a you know, defensive negative response. You think that person could be hostile, it could be an enemy, they're saying something mean to me. So it just, you know, if 
you wear a new pair, I always say to a woman, if you wear a new pair of jeans to work and nine people tell you you look fabulous, just one person says you make your bum look fat and you want to go home and get changed. You ignore the nine positive and go with the one negative because our brain's focused on survival. And I think a lot of anxiety is getting ready for the worst case scenario. I do that, you know, and that can be a good survival strategy. Right, what if it all turns to shit? What's the plan? What's plan B and then plan C? Because when those, hardly ever do things turn to shit. But it's good to know when they do that I'm nice and smooth and ready to go to plan B and plan C and keep all my shit together. Um, but that can become anxiety if you find yourself over planning for it. You just have to fall back and go, I can be getting a bit anxious about going to do something that oh, I go, oh, hold on, I'm really, really good at this. It always goes really, really well and I always really love it. I'm just doing that automatic thing of getting ready for the worst. Stop doing that. I'll have to consciously make myself stop doing it. Because your brain is focused on negative stuff. Yeah. Just and it's and people are so naturally skewed where it can be a strength of, like you said, you know, being able to adjust if things don't go to plan. But it seems like it's skewed in such a direction where it's become just a um a manifestation yeah. of people's lives where it's just it's almost like they don't have control anymore. It's because that that's anxiety is is in like you said, anticipation what's to come. So they're not in the now yeah. time, are they? They're yeah. in the future and looking at that's right. But, and gratitude is yeah, the antidote to that. You know, it's the opposite to that. It's like, I mean, I can feel a difference. There's an ad that they play that goes, um, right, just stop and think of um, five things you're grateful for right now. And I can't hear that without having to do it. <laughs> so, I, and it's amazing the change when, even if you're having a shit day, you know, there's always the, my kids are still alive. All my kids love me. No one in their family has any diseases. Like, you know, and then I think we live in a time where we've got electricity. I'm grateful for electricity, you know. Most of human history didn't have that and things were much harder. Like, you know, oh, all of my children stayed alive. You know, they're basic stuff. But for most of human history, that didn't happen. We're actually living in a really luxurious you know, mm -hmm. time. So it's, and saying those things out loud releases the endorphins and stuff in the brain. And that thing that we're saying about what you choose to focus your attention on, you've just been, you know, 10 seconds focusing on, because there is lots to be grateful for. Everybody has misery in their life um, at some point along the way. You know, it's part of the experience. And everyone's going to have joy, I think, as well. But, um, it's how you handle that, you know, that, that 80% in the middle. Mm. I find a big uh, trap for that potentially is because of the environment people find themselves in, but the assumptions people assume too much, like, yeah, my kids will be adults because the average age is 80 yet. I've got lots of friends and, and clients, unfortunately, who've lost their children. That's, that's right. That's horrific. It's only about being bad and grateful for it. Cause we've all had friends that have done that. So I make mm. sure when you're talking about things to be grateful, I'm saying people have always got things to be grateful for. And, oh, you wouldn't be grateful either if you just been made redundant and you you know, well, if you're leasing stuff, it's like, yeah, there is still a lot of stuff to be grateful for. Your kid hasn't died. You wouldn't say that, but you know what I'm saying there is no matter how miserable the person's life is, there are things to be grateful for. It, I, I might be a bit of a delusional optimist at times, Nathan, but I tell you, mate, yeah. it's so fucking tiring and frustrating, though, when you look at those people. Like, I'm always looking at, and it's not, I'm not a positivity fairy, but it's like, hey, but you know what, man, you had a job, you got, at least you had a job you got fired from, right? Yeah. At least you got chosen for a period of time. Lots of people don't. Yeah. But but it seems to be like with with a, a certain probably large yeah. volume of people, you're beating your head against the wall. Like how do we, and yeah. maybe they don't want to be at a deeper level. When you said you can change, but there's more than just vocalising at once, how do we? How do we change and create that? What what are the, is it environment? Is it is it repetition through other things? Like how, how would you? I mean, it's multifaceted. It's not just one thing. You know, it's like okay, we could talk about your diet. How you got to get your brain ready for the sort of the conditions of neuroplasticity. But just changing your diet by itself doesn't usually do it. You've got to have the um and a sort of understanding of the basic stuff we're talking about. You know, how you think, metacognition, and the survival process, and the negativity. Um, yeah. So it's multifaceted. I don't think there's just one simple thing. Yeah. I normally got people from the, you know, the just increasing neuroplasticity for a start. 
and trying to have conversations like this where they understand that they can change. When I get someone who's just as like, no, but, no, but, no, but, no, but, I think I'm there depressed. That's depression. You know, the black hat on. Do you know Bono's um, theories of the different colored hats? No. Oh, like it's like seven different hats. It's really old. It's just yeah. basic and classic. Yeah, sure. um, yeah. the, the black hat is, is it, let's look at the situation from as negative a point of view as possible. Think of everything that could possibly go wrong. That's the black hat. And then um, I think the yellow hat is the joyful hat. Let's look at the you know wildest dreams. This is the what's the best stuff that could happen from this point. There's basically seven different emotions to look at the situation with, and you have to put on each of the hats. So it's a really good way of forcing yourself to get out of that. Near people with depression don't realize they're wearing the black hat the whole time. I think no, that's just how the world is, and you're being all bloody eerie fury. That's just how it is. It's not. It's not. That's not how the experience of life is for most people. It's how it is for you, and because. Uh, yeah, but part of that is changing that thinking and being open to the fact that you might just think like that because you've developed a, you know, a brain that's got depression and that you can do things to help change that by being open to, you know, not just what you're saying, it's, it's that metacognition, thinking about how you're thinking. That's what I like about it is that you're, it's, I'm not arguing with what your particular view is about this rugby game or whatever, but why are you always negative? Why are you always taking the critical way? Just a layer deeper on critical thinking, I guess, with with questioning yeah. your thoughts, position, or emotion, or stories, like you said. And it's like the, yeah. the old uh, bad luck always happens to me, so bad luck keeps happening. They keep putting yeah. energy into that reality. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me like if we have 8 billion people here, Nathan, then there's 8 billion realities in essence. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so absolutely. The there's people. no two the same. You know, so we don't have this one objective reality at the time, yeah. I mean, we've always known that if you've got four people at, at an intersection on each corner and they all watch an accident, they all report different things and do, you know, they all have in a different way. So we always knew that witness accounts were not reliable. And now we understand all the neuroscience and how the brain works. We realize that, oh, yeah, because they've all got story makers and they're all constructing their own story. Bloody hell. That's, um, it's fascinating stuff, mate. And that was, I guess, the, the first of two things I wanted to, to cover. The first was yep. change it. But the second one... um. Not that obviously we've been in, into this podcast for a period of time now, but I guess give us, I'd love to then move into, mate, what is, you know, neuroscience? Like give us an overview. Like I know you've been yeah. expressing and explaining it, but now coming yeah. back. So what, what for, for those who obviously may not be aware or familiar with yeah. this stuff, and a lot of our, our men won't be, but um, yeah. what is neuroscience? And then what are some key things that yeah. from that, your life experience, your studies, could correlate yep. to some valuable stuff for fathers, parenthood, children. I mean, neuroscience okay. is a very, very general topic. You know, anyone that, I guess, mean, the science of the brain. So anyone that works with that. I mean, I really work in the area of cognitive neuroscience. So I'm not a brain surgeon. I'm not operating anyone's brains. I'm not, you know, the, I know some of the biology of the brain because it overlaps with cognition and how you think. But, you know, my experience has been um, working with people who are traumatized and how you heal the brain and stuff. So it's been, um, yeah. So... I think a cognitive neuroscientist is someone who works out exactly that, how you think, and that's what fascinates me more than the, the you know, how a um, neuron works. I know the basics of how the brain works, but I don't, don't really need to know the 50 different bloody names of the chemicals that come out of a neuron because I'm looking for the meaningful stuff that connects to parents and change with people. And, you know, yeah, Absolutely. I think I, I want to help people with a fast track, you know, to do the cheat sheet thing and just get cut straight to the guts of it. I've just been lucky. I've had jobs where for, like, for you know, 25 years I've been immersed in it. I've been a, you know, I've had been um, had jobs where I've had to be evidence based, and I've you know had teams of researchers supporting me to do it. I've just been in a privileged position. I've been able to get the information that I knew was the accurate information because it comes from the right channels, and I've got a good ability to summarise it quickly. Mm. So it's just um, yeah, it's about doing that. 
Great, mate. So that's um, what neuroscience is to me. It's just about yeah. giving you information about how your brain works because it's nice and solid. When you talk to guys about psychology and stuff, you know, uh, which is where I started out, not that many guys are open to that. You know, it's too fluffy. Uh, you know, you're, so, you're supposed to love yourself. I don't know how the fuck am I supposed to do that? Like, whereas um, neuroscience gives you a solid concrete, you know, you've got an amygdala that's your emotional, that's your emotional brain, and then you've got a frontal cortex that can override that. So when you get angry and your amygdala goes, yeah, you can usually override it. Uh, but when you can objectify it, like an anger thing like that, and see it as a physical thing, and think you've just got to exercise your, um, you know, your frontal cortex, um, I just find that people, especially men, take it on board a whole lot more. They can grasp it. They can work with it. They can, mm. you know, have a level of medical vision themselves, know how their own brains work, and they give you some level of control. Mm. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's not just. It's not. I'm. I'm against it, but I hear a lot of. Um, you know big players, I guess, in, in the day go, knowledge is power. I'm like, yeah, only if it's applied. Like, it's probably a half-truth. Like, information alone isn't the key because you could have that information, like said, in psychology, but what's the point of connection? Yep. You saying what you are now is going to make much more sense to our listeners and it's going to hit home. They might have heard it 30, 40, 50 times over the years. Yep. It makes sense, didn't fucking take it, but this point. So, no, I agree with you, mate, and that's, yeah. that's what we share with our tribe, speed. Like, you, speed is the game, accuracy is the key because we – Mm-hmm. We think 80 years is long, Nathan, but it, it obviously isn't, mate. But um, no. with, with, with that being said, um, so now I love everything you're sharing on, on getting to the nuts and bolts of it all. He, here we are. So I want I wouldn't mind going into, I guess, some of the core points of those cheat sheets. Here we are. Our, our men okay. are generally entering the second half in their life, our, most of our listeners' men, 30s and 40s, some in their 50s. Yep. Our oldest member's 68. God bless him. What a legend. But, yeah, generally 40s and early 50s. And here are these in the chaos of life trying to provide financial freedom. They've got their wife. They're trying to make sure her needs are met. Um, as a man, that they very seldom do things for themselves, sacrificing for the family, and they've got their kids, and and they're growing. Yeah. Like this is this is the what we call either the, the pit or the downward spiral or the tough spot where we we yeah. want men to win the second half in life. Yet they they find like they're at a loggerheads with opening up and breaking down what are some of the core things i guess from your findings um i know we've got limited time today this is hopefully the first of uh yep. of many but what are some core things in your cheat sheets like you mentioned that could help a father and mother listening to this around parenthood with young children overcoming trauma teenagers and possibly technology what are some valuable things you might be able to provide or insights that might help some of our listeners today um, I think like if they're 50s and they've got teenagers, it's understanding that the teenage years can be like really hard. You know, when your primary school kids run to cuddle you when you come in the door, um, teenagers grunt and hardly can lift an eyebrow. You know, so it's not as rewarding as a parent. Um, and we're working really hard. So I think um, some empathy for the situation that you're in. Um, so what's a cheat sheet way of having a good relationship with the child? That's what I'd be interested in. And there are some cheat sheet ways. A good relationship is basically about communication. So let's look at what the research says about communication styles and which communication styles are the most effective. And we look at um, the, you know, what the teenagers think and what the parents think, because there has always been heaps of research on it, you know, t- different styles of parenting and stuff. Um, and so you basically say, oh, there's kind of an algorithm behind having good communication. You know, I worked out that, um, you know, what I mean meaningfully is that if when teenagers shut down, don't talk to their parents, they don't, they're universally shut down, but they all go to like Sally's mother and spill their guts to Sally's mother and tell Sally's mother everything. So they're all not talking to their parents, but they're all talking to Sally's mother. You know, when I was at school, we all shut down from talking to the teachers and didn't really open up very much like with the enemy, but we all told the history teacher everything. So what was Sally's mother doing? What was the history teacher doing? They had some communication style that made them privy to a much better relationship and more communication. Because our stereotype of parents is we say, yeah, how's your day? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. You know, they, we're they're not talking to us. 
um, whereas they're talking to Sally's mother. So what I found was that essentially it's because of the emotional brain. It's because what the history teacher was doing and what Sally's mother was doing, I didn't realise it, was they were speaking to the emotional brain first, a process called validation. When you say that, basically validation is just saying the emotion behind what the person is feeling before you give a strategy. And if I open up the door, extreme example, but if I open the door and my 15-year-old daughter's, you know, bawling her eyes out, snot everywhere, delirious, right? Um, I need to, number one, I need to calm her down. There's no point in me going straight to tell me what happened because she can hardly talk, you know, she's upset. So number one is calm down. Number three, I'm missing out number two. Number two is validation, right? But number three is uh, is actually the most effective way to change another human being's behavior is a method called cognitive training. You know, our parents argued whether it was a star chart or whether it was a kick up the ass or, you know, what is the most effective way to change behavior? We know from a research base it's called cognitive training. And cognitive training is basically cognition just means thinking, like training your thinking. It's an academic way of saying, tell the kid what to do instead of what not to do. So, you know, when I say like 25% of your brain is the parietal lobe, so often called the outer lobe, and you know, it does visualization. So when I say to people, visualize a blue car, you know, roughly 25% of your brain is engaged to visualize a blue car. And then I say to people, like, I turn that part of your brain off, nobody picture an elephant. And then nobody picture a chicken. And of course, everybody is picturing an elephant and then a chicken because you can't turn that part of your brain off. So think of that in terms of behavior management. When we say, don't stand on the chair, what 25% of your brain has to immediately picture standing on the chair. They so say, don't hit your sister. 25% of your brain's patronizing hitting your sister. We like to blame the kids for their behavior, but a lot of their behavior is dictated by our language. Cognitive training is just tell them what to do and sit. Don't, you don't say, um, don't stand on the chair. You say, sit down on the chair. And you say, use gentle hands with your sister. Now, 25% of their brain is picturing um, sitting down on a chair or using gentle hands with their sister. So in that way, if that's our style of interaction, you stop telling the kids what not to do. You tell them what to do instead, cognitive training. Their behavior improves drastically, immediately. You know, pretty much immediately. And that's reassuring because it's really hard to change someone else's behavior, but it's relatively easy to change your own. So stop telling them what not to do and tell them, you know, the more detail you can describe in that cognitive training, the faster it you know, turns up the behavior. Um, so yeah, that's a, but step number two, cognitive training can just sound like nagging if you don't do the validation. So step number one, calm the brainstem. Step number two, validate the emotions coming from the limbic system, the emotional brain. And then step number three, provide a cognitive strategy, you know, the cognitive training of what you should have done instead. Um, that's um, yeah. that's unreal, mate. Would you mind giving some examples around validation for our men? Because obviously, like we said, yep. with the emotional yep. regulation. That's right. So I've opened up the door, and my daughter's standing there doing the ugly cry. It's not mm. everywhere. So number one, I calm her down. So what you can't just impose how you calm down. You know, I might go for a jog or a run. She's not going to do that. So you know, her way of calming down is a hug. So I give her a hug. I say, "What's the matter?" She's like, "Broken up with my boyfriend. The world's over. I'm never going to fall in love with anyone ever again." Now, if I go straight to my frontal cortex, which is really kind of recognizing patterns, that's what a frontal cortex does, and I go, well, honey, based on your previous relationships, I'd imagine two weeks from now, you'd be obsessed with the next boy. You would have forgotten all about this one. Now, I could be absolutely right. That could be the pattern. But she, is she going to feel heard? Is she going to feel like I understand? Is she going to feel connected? No, she's going to go away and talk to Sally's mother. Um, so, yeah, validation is something that I can't rely on with a cuddle. What's the matter? I break off a boyfriend. And I say something like, oh, honey, I know you felt stronger about this boy than, you know, any other boy you've been with, so you must be really upset. Validation doesn't have to be agreement. I could have not liked her boyfriend and be secretly really glad he's gone, but I can still say, oh, honey, I know you felt strongly about this boy than any other person, um, so you must be really upset. You can just talk into the emotion behind what she was saying before you did the strategy. And she goes, oh, he's listening. He understands. He gets it. Then 10 minutes later when I say, honey, if you, just, if you think about other times, it's only really intense for the first two weeks. You just need to get through the next two weeks. That's really helpful advice to give a teenager. 
your emotional brain doesn't understand time. And when they really do believe when they're broken up and how bad they feel, they're going to feel that way forever. So listening to me saying it'll only feel intense for two weeks, that's a more achievable goal than dealing with it forever. So what I'm saying is I really want her to listen to my advice. But for me to listen to her, for her to listen to my advice, well, yeah, for her to listen to me, I've got to listen to her. And she's an emotional teenager. If I don't speak to her emotion, the emotion is 90% of their worldview. If I don't speak to that emotion, I've just ignored 90% of their worldview. And when, they, when teenagers say you're not listening to me, that's what they mean. Because mm-hmm. we, go, we think we're trying to help, be helpful by going straight to a strategy. But actually, if you go straight to a strategy, oh, you should have done this, um, you're kind of just nagging and they don't feel connected. Like I say, what Sally's mother and the history teacher were doing was that simple. They were doing step number two, validation. It can be as simple as going, oh, you must have been angry. Oh, you must have been happy. Oh, you must have been sad. It's not complicated to do validation. Just name the emotion behind what they're feeling before you go to tell them what they should have done instead. And then you'll feel they'll feel connected and loved out rather than just nagged at and told what to do. But as men, we're Mr. Fix It's we need to solve the solution now, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. That solution. But we're missing that point, which we um key things I talk about inside HPF is uh perception of value, like you said, running. So I've got a gym and my daughter does ballet and, and netball and she's mm-hmm. only six. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to bring Stella into my gym and talk about hypertrophy, breaking down the muscle, bone density and performance. But however, mm-hmm. if I go into her world, what perceives as value, she wants to throw the ball further. She wants to do the the pirouette in ballet. And, mm-hmm. and I can be like, cool. And I see what she sees as value and then bring her into my world. I found that's worked so well, Nathan, where I'm, I mean, she's six. I'm not getting her lifting weights, but I can bring her into my mm-hmm. world. We can build connection. And I know the outcome is, bone density, health, chemical balances, all the things that comes with moving your yep. body. However, for her, she's jumping high, she's crushing it in ballet and so on. And I think um, yeah. we focus on two things inside of HBF, um, seeing what they see as value to go into their world so we can connect and bring them in ours. And second one is acknowledging them. Is that something like, is that similar to validation, acknowledgement, like you're, you're hearing yep. them, like they're being? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because what you said, man, yeah. that's that's awesome. I love it's that. similar, they overlap. I mean, acknowledging is also that paraphrase. You know, where I say back to you what you said. So what you're telling me is that this and this and this. So you actually, you know, before I give my strategy again that I paraphrase. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's unreal. What about teenagers though? They're numb. They don't really communicate with their parents. There's nothing going wrong, but there's just no, there's no connection. Because mm. right? we get that a lot with our guys where they just feel like yep. I just can't connect with them anymore. And then they're good. They love me. They're high this, but you know, it's, yep. I'm not sure, but what. You, know, you have they're still 10 to 20 percent of the time where they're nice but it's just that their amygdala is a deliberately inflamed during adolescence this is a time when you went out and got as many people pregnant as you could you know because you were going to die at 32 so <laughs> most of human history so you know um and and this is you know this is the age where we invent things like every single invention that has changed mankind in any significant way was invented by a teenager no adults ever invented anything significant you know um every single image you can think of the computer that steam engine the end of that was done by a teenager um so it's a period of creativity which means record um, it means you know risk taking and stuff so it was a time we traditionally detached from our parents basically your frontal cortex the brain that's got all your adult stuff in it and got your shit together um it's not going to be fully developed till sort of mid to late 20s but about halfway in the middle when you're about 15 16 17 basically it's just shut for renovations for three years so the kid moves the teenager moves back down into their emotional brain so the brain scan of a 15 year old and a five-year-old are remarkably similar the structure is different, but what I'm saying is similar because all of the activity is happening in brain number three, the emotional brain, and there's bugger all lights on in brain number four, the frontal cortex that regulates emotions and understands consequences and remembers their PE gear. And it is an evolutionary thing that's supposed to shut down for three years and get all this massive rewiring done. You know, if you're, if you're in a shop um, and you need to do a shop refit, 
if you keep the shop open and have to have customers and trying to get the builders to work around the customers, it's going to take a year to do the refit. So what you normally do is shut the shop down, let the builders go for it, and they and you know they get done in two weeks. It's kind of a good metaphor for what's happening in the brain. There's a lot of changes that take place, and and they need them to be for most of human history. We needed them to be risk takers at this age, to have babies and to win wars. They need to be risk takers. Um, so the brain's set up for the big amygdala, the anger brain. They actually see anger everywhere. Like if you put up six different facial expressions and get adults to read them, they get 100% accuracy. Pre-teens to do it, they get 95% accuracy. Get teenagers to do it, they get 50% accuracy. That's a huge drop because their brain's no longer looking with this frontal cortex that we would look at. Well, typically, they're looking with an amygdala. They're using their anger center to read facial expressions. So they read most of the facial expressions as being angry. Basically, for a teenager, you're probably obviously, obviously happy or you're pissed off. And yeah, and potentially because of what you mentioned then in them inherently looking to be risk takers, but the parents are losing control because it's gone from the physical dependency of a baby to now the psychological connection and a loss of environment yeah. control because they're out here and here in school. Yeah. So there's a potential for the way they're seeing the world, the way the parents are trying to not control but guide them, there's this collision because yeah. they're seeing as rebellious yeah. and the parents are seeing as disciplinarian and dominant. And is that why there's a bit of a – there seems to be a yep. – <clears throat> bumping heads so to speak yeah well it's certainly a part of it you know and we see in the research that the parents who use what's called a backbone style of parenting you know get the better outcomes the research talks about authoritarian authoritative but they're boring titles i like barbara colorosa's terms brick wall parent jellyfish parent backbone parent so brick wall parent is quite authoritarian and makes the kids follow strict boundaries but shut up and do as you're told no discussion which you know basically that works for a dog because a dog doesn't have a frontal cortex so you're not trying to grow a frontal cortex so but when you treat a ch- child like that, um, they do have a frontal cortex. They do have thinking. You know, they, if you want them to learn to think, it's like an apprenticeship. You have to do that with them. Shut up and do as you're told. It's not, not apprenticing them into how to think. So with the backbone style of parenting, I mean, jellyfish has obviously got no spine. So you just let the kids do what they want and you can't follow through. <laughs> I love that. Um, but the, the backbone, because uh, your backbone gives you support and structure, but it is responsive and flexible moment by moment. So it talks to a parenting style that does have boundaries and you're in charge, but you negotiate those boundaries. It can be as simple as me going, instead of going, right, you're going to be at 7 o'clock. You know, 7.30, that's your bedtime. It's going, okay, right, well, okay, we're going to need to set your bedtime. Um, you know, your mother and I have been talking and we were thinking, like, you know, around 7 o'clock probably seems reasonable. What are your thoughts on it? You might need to give them some time to go away and think about it and stuff. You might in your head know that you're going to do it at 7 o'clock, but just having the conversation and negotiation yes. is using a frontal cortex. It's, you know, um, you can't just tell them to shut and do as they're told, but it doesn't create intelligence. So the backbone style of parenting, you tend to get way better outcomes with the kids. They learn how to make decisions. Um, it's, it's not to on and off. That's what I was going to say. It gives them the opportunity for ownership over something, which I think is important, even in roles Absolutely. in the company as adults. It, give, it gives them the chance to own an outcome where it's like, well, I'd like to be in bed by 10 past seven because I like to do this for 10 minutes. Or, but yeah. And like you said, you want your mind seven, but there's a bit of flexibility, but then they can own the outcome. And that's probably a good a good movement for behavioral change too, because the outcome is theirs to take responsibility for instead of the brick yeah. wall, the jellyfish. We call it the, uh, we have a term being the chief, which is the man who, the chief in the middle, um, yeah. has the ability and skills on how and when to be the Viking. So that's the, the, the assertive, the strength, the, the yeah. not authoritarian, but yeah, as, as a man that tapped it, but also. No, I think we are all styles, you know, it's yeah. just about the balance of that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have we, moments of each. We call it the panda, the jellyfish, the panda, where it's like laid back, belly exposed, fun and cuddly. Oh, yeah. 
too much of that. Though. Like the jellyfish, probably not good. <laughs> yeah, unless you're a grandparent. I've got my grandson oh, here yeah. for holidays. <laughs> totally fine to be a panda when you're a grandparent. It's just your parents have to do all the work and put in place the discipline and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Wait, that's what I'm, uh, not not that I'm wishing my life away, but I'm excited because I'm looking through all the stresses of your 30s and 40s and building your life. I'm like, man, when I'm a grandparent, I can kick back and fun. And, uh, and, but, but, but being healthy and fit. Be, be the, uh, yeah. the panda or the jellyfish for the grandkids, and uh, but not re- but have the repercussions when they go home to mum and dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, there's, there's actually something I want to read here. It's part of a, an, a team brain you talk about. What, what Nathan mm-hmm. just shared, guys, there are 6,000-year-old hieroglyphics carved into the pyramids depicting teenagers of the time as being self-obsessed, defined, and unmotivated. 6,000-year-old. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty familiar, yeah. I think. So this is something that's always been around. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare talks about it in his play, The Winter's Tale. He says, I wish there were no age between 13 and 23, but all the youth thinks of is getting wench with child. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's quite a little overshadow, but all throughout history, we've always seen this um, this breakdown, this they seem to go backwards in their ability to control their emotions. So rates of anxiety, depression, they go all moody. And it's like it is. It's about that we can see the biological changes now in brain spheres. And we can connect it to our history because the brain's always adapting to what we do in the environment. You know, nature accommodates nurture. Um, but it's just over thousands of years. So mm-hmm. we're dealing with a brain that is very well suited to be probably going to die at 32. And so, you know, want to have as many kids as possible and find your life partner at 15, 16. So we've got the biology of that. We don't want our 15, 16-year-olds going out and, you know, trying to get pregnant with as many different people as possible. That's a good survival aim because now all the kids won't die with the same disease because we've all got a different father. <laughs> but it's not the values we have in this world today. Wow. But we've got the biology for that. You know? It's yeah. where the cells are behind. Um, I wish we said it. Well, that didn't make parents feel any better, did it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I wish this was a, a five-hour podcast episode, Nathan, but I know we've got to wrap up in uh, in the next five minutes, mate, but it's uh, it's been incredible. Um, I guess just a just a couple of quick things to to wrap up mm-hmm. on, like I said, yep. the first of, of hopefully many. Um, apart from those three steps you mentioned, if we do have a teenager who's – operating through that lens and trying to figure yeah. themselves out what would be a good way for a parent to i don't know if breakthrough is the word but to to continue to rebuild that, that integrity in the relationship yeah um well i think that i find is really really effective i often recommend it i call it a mate date and it is where you give the kid 10 minutes a week where they get all the they get all the power of being a parent and they own you kind of for 10 minutes because we spend our whole life telling them what to do and what to feel and how they should think and you know, what the boundaries are and then we say they don't talk to us. But, you know, how often do we let them go? And t- kids take longer. When that little cortex is shut for renovations, and they can only go, yeah, no, don't know. It takes them longer to articulate the thought. We don't give them that time because we jump in. Um, even if we're asking questions, we're leading. So a mate date is you give the kid a 10-minute period. It's only 10 minutes. So if everyone's time poor, it's 10 minutes once a week. It works. Um, and it has to be predictable, though, because the brain works so much on predictability. You'll know that. So that's... You can't just do it randomly. It's going to make it much better and take if the kids know it's Thursday at four o'clock, right? Um, and basically for 10 minutes, you set it up with them, let them know that you're not allowed to lead. You're not allowed to interrupt. You're not allowed to have, they can do it. They own you for 10 minutes. Like I'm trying to do this quickly because I know we're running out of time, but in the first week, they don't believe that you're going to do it. So they just go, oh, I'm not allowed to do anything in this 10 minutes. All right, I'll play the PlayStation because they're not normally allowed to play PlayStation. But if that's what they chose, you don't answer your cell phone. You don't do anything else. You if they only own you for 10 minutes a week and they choose to play PlayStation, then you sit and watch that PlayStation for 10 minutes. It's starting to give a message to the kid that you're actually prioritizing a space for them where you just shut up for 10 minutes. You remember, in that time, you're not even allowed to ask a question because that's leading. You're only allowed to respond. So you might just actually sit there, shut up for 10 minutes. You know, The second week, 
they're surprised that you're still doing it. So they go, oh, I play PlayStation again. Then I'm going to do the same thing. You know, this is like a waste of time. You know, I'm just wasting 10 minutes. On the third week, they start to test it, usually. Well, not, they're not, not predictable, but this is usually what happens. By the third week, teenagers will then swear during the session. Fucking hot outside, isn't it, mum? You know, because they're not normally allowed to swear like that. So but this is a test to see if, well, I'm supposed to be in charge for 10 minutes. Are you going to tell me off? Are you going to jump back into the... And you don't. You don't encourage it. So you wouldn't say, yes, it's fucking hot outside. But you don't, you don't respond to it. You just go, yeah, it's hot outside. Um, you know, basically, anything they do in that 10 minutes, they're allowed to. Um, by the fourth week, the kid starts to open up and tell you stuff. Because they know there's not going to be a consequence. You're not allowed to do anything outside the 10 minutes. It's like, again, the zone of silence. Um, yeah, I just find it and powerfully, it takes four weeks or 10 minutes, it takes 40 minutes investment. The hard part of this is shutting up. Parents have never had to shut up for a whole 10 minutes. You know, and they, don't, they don't even realize that they're leading when they ask questions and stuff. Um, they find it very hard to not be in control. So it's the shutting up part that's difficult. The rest of it flows like magic. Just you shut up for four weeks consistently and the kid starts talking to you. Um, you know, uh, yeah, because they have, they've got the time to articulate, they've got the space to say it, there's no consequence. Um, because you are really listening to them, but they don't know you're listening to them because we're so quick to go with strategies and stuff. We're so quick to interrupt and to lead and to advise and stuff um, that they don't have to listen to. So this will be 10 minutes a week where they're listening to. You know, this is, and they can, you have to be prepared to, if they want to say, um, you know, um, I hate how you make all the rules, Dad. You're, you're a wanker. You know, um, you know, you treat mum like a wanker and you just bowl over top of everybody else and think because you, the way you say it is, you know, I'm just making that up. Like, but if that's what, because he, if that's how he feels, I don't get stuck on whether it's true or not. I mean, it probably is. <laughs> but um, don't get stuck on the fact that it's true. He thinks that. He's only got a teenage brain. He might live in la-la land, and that's his negatively wired brain. It's not whether it's true or not. He feels that way about you. You needed to hear that 10 minutes because you need to work with that. Don't worry about whether it's true or not. Work with the fact that you have a son that thinks you're a control freak and don't listen and you're abusive because you don't want a son that thinks that. And you're probably not. You know? mm. So you still hear what I'm saying is even when it's real bad shit, it's good that you hear that bad shit. <laughs> yeah. It's not normally. It's normally a positive experience for parents. They continue it for the rest of their childhood and they find it's a really special thing. Because their fear out of consequences means the survival mechanisms kicked in, so they're not opening up to us because we don't give them that yeah, yeah. brave judgment. We're the policeman, we're the policeman yes. and the, the jailer and stuff, you know. Well, yeah, you yeah. can do that any age, mate, or because we do a thing called special time uh, in HBF where it's we fill the bucket of attention and power. So my kids are six, yeah. four, and two, and ten minutes. We, you know, they can put makeup on, daddy, do whatever they want. Yeah, so something that yeah. is good for all ages as well. You'd recommend, or yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be, yeah. Probably they should be probably three or four to comprehend what's going on before they just give them full attention anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can do this with thirty-year-old children. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'd say I'd do it with the members, but they might they might do one over on me. Give them 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. I've got to do 100 burpees and force that. me to do some stuff. But uh, no, incredible, mate. Um, awesome. Been great having you on, Nathan. I guess final thoughts for a father or a parent listening to this, um, something they could do for themselves, on themselves, whether it's reflection, journaling, any any sort of small tips or things for us as individuals to be better so we can give 100% yeah. to our children, mate, or any final thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, because I've had my grandson here for the school holidays, I'm always then reminded of just how much work it is to be a parent. God, I'm, you know, the grandparent. And it's exhausting, you know, like, um, I can see why parents go, go on the computer. He's always asked, my grandpa's always asking me, I'm a computer and I avoid it the whole time. And yeah, I don't want to do that. Why would be active? Because I'm here for a few days, so I'm trying to put it away. But I um, gave in last night, I literally had the computer. So he just went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> an hour before that. And when he gave him the computer, silence on it. 
this is why parents fall into the trap and getting the kids confused straight away because you get a little bit of silence. Um, so I, the thing that pops into my head though is that you're so busy as a parent that you don't put aside me time. I don't mean me time as in being selfish, but doing some ritual that looks after you and nurtures you, even if it's only 10 minutes, that, you know, even if it's years, because it can seem like a waste of time because you've got so much to do. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that you don't need self-care. You need self-care as well. So do something for your self-care. You know, it might just be going for a walk after tea. I mean, I, yeah, but do something. Don't avoid that. Because I think it's me and we do. Look after everybody else first. Oh, I don't need that. I'll be fine. I'm a bit guilty of that myself for all of my parenting. It's probably what I'm reflecting on. I look back and think, sure, I would have been nicer, happier, and a little less angry if I had been more friend Nathan and spent some time investing in Nathan the guy instead of being the whole time Nathan the father. Yes. You know, I felt like I took up all my time. And, yeah. and Nathan the guy was sometimes nicer than Nathan the father. He's about, you know, like authoritarian and needs to get things done and, you know, brick wall and all of that. So true, mate. Like I, a few days a week, I do a morning meeting with myself. I've got my own board of directors of life and, you know, they're, right. they're visuals yeah. of the future version of Al, my mother and father, and talking to them through talking to me. Oh, I love that. Guys. And yeah. it's, it's really, it's really reflective because A, it's, if you think someone's watching you 24 seven, you behave differently. hundred percent you do. But secondly, absolutely. it's absolutely just for myself to be like, okay, if I can do this 20 minutes, a few days a week, mate, it's, the stability over the household and that temperament of being one level above the chaos. You're right. And, yeah. and people need to think about that. Those listening, like Nathan's spot on. If you, It's the ROI. You give yourself 10 minutes. What can I do in 10 minutes? Journaling, having a cup of tea, going for What can I do in 10 yeah. minutes that'll make the next thousand minutes, or that's a day, the next hundred minutes mm -hmm. better for those around me, including myself. It's um, great yeah. advice. Um, mm. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us, man. I'm really looking forward to our future episodes. I'm, I'm very confident that uh, we're just scratching the surface and you've got so much. Absolutely. It's been unreal, but I hope you guys really enjoyed this again. Absolutely encourage you to uh, share this with the teenage kids as well, Nathan, or what do you think, mate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good for them to get an understanding of their own brain, you know, because it's a stressful time for them. It's often validating for teenagers to find out. Oh, good. So I'm not mental. It is supposed to be that, you know, because their emotions just go through the roof. Nothing wrong with you know, me. Everything's huge. And, yeah. 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 That's a big thing. There's, 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 it's not just me. We find that with our fathers. They're like, fuck, I'm the only one going through this. I'm like, no, nah, man, so many fathers go through it. Probably similar for teenagers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. But yeah. I loved having you on, mate. Thanks so much for your time. And I hope you guys really enjoy this and, and looking forward to uh, many future episodes. It's been unreal. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Cheers, bro. Cheers, mate. That's great, uh, Nathan. Thank you so much, man. That's I appreciate the oh, time. Cheers, I, know you, I know you got to bounce, but um, how did you find that, mate? Was that something that you you, know, you enjoyed? Yeah, and... I do. I loved it. Um, I was worried. I was a bit all over the show because you know, but you know, it's that thing of just parenting for the last three days bloody exhausted me. <laughs> oh, I think your yeah, BA might have told Daniel you've been a bit sick too, mate. Unfortunately. Yeah, been... yeah. So yeah, poor bastard. It's just about gone. It just lingers for ages. Yeah. And... Yeah, yeah. No, it's I'm up. well used to just ignoring the flu, though. We live in an age where you can take flu drugs. I love it. I'm no, I'm no hero. I just pile up the flu drugs and carry yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought it was perfect, mate. It painted quite a quite a, a high level of um, valuable info for the guys. No, I think oh, great. It was, and look, honestly, mate, like I, yeah, I think you've got such an important message, um, and I think it's super valuable. I think the way you do it is just completely like right? us, mate. You know, and I'm not. I'm not yeah. pissing in your pocket and I'm definitely not a man who, who chases or supplicates, but no, I, I hear you. I reckon you should, I reckon this would be fantastic, mate, for you to be I will be, I will be. I'm so going to do it. Because like, I feel the connection. I can see where you're coming from. I can feel, you know, when something's 
meant to be, if you like. You know, that's, that's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm feeling it. So yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Look, let me let me flick here. What is your? Do you want me to well, do a personal man. email, mate, or what, what? How do you want me to? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, it's just Nathan D. Oh no, Nathan Wallace Brains is my direct one. Just N A T H A N W A L L I S B R A I N S at gmail.com. Gmail.com. Yeah, awesome. I'll put something together, mate. Like again, like I understand you've obviously got lots of other commitments. We're definitely uh, running live events. Um, we can look at that too. Flying you over, I would love to have you at a physical event as well. But I think consistently, um, yeah. which would be awesome. But but so we'll try and plan that depending on your schedule um, later in the yeah. year. I'm sure you're of course, mate. busy now, but mate, hundred percent. I want to get um, yeah I can't consistently wait. in with the tribe. I think it'd be awesome. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put together a little proposal. I guess you you do have like courses, content, or things as well that we could like you you would share with our guys or what? Yeah, would... yeah, absolutely. I mean, I haven't been because of my career has happened sort of organically. I didn't set out strategically to do it. I was just like helping people, and then found better ways of doing it, and better ways of doing it. Instead of building a mansion, it was like a villa that's had sixteen rooms on yeah. in my career. Um, yeah. You know, whereas if I'd known it was going to be that large, I might have planned more strategically at the start. Um, so I have lots of random stuff, thousands of things all over that I, my secretary has tried to pull into a place and, and into one place because I certainly can record lots of stuff, but I've had a lack of a, of a staff around me to collate it and have it yes. available. Yeah, of course. Um, but I've been doing that for a few years now, though, so there is a bit of a library. Even if you wanted to, I mean, that's what I'm just saying because we do. We've got our own course I put together, but I think you know your expertise in bringing it in would be fantastic. Otherwise, if if you were doing fortnightly with our guys, I can get our team to collate all the information, put it together in a course. Obviously, you know, give, yeah, correct. if you wanted to leverage and use, so I'll get them to do all the work for you. But oh, I love that's it. Something you're happy to keep just for our, yeah. our members, not something I'm gonna like just yeah, for yeah. our members. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not something I'm looking to sell at all, but it'd be something that our yeah. members have access to. Like, we could get them to chop it up. And now, let's say you do fortnightly sessions for 90 minute workshops, yeah. mate, that'll be unreal. But if they're doing that, I'll get them to put that together and give it straight to you as well. That's, yeah, that's a given, mate. That's the least I could do for cool. this, this relationship in moving forward. Um, Excellent, man. I, could, I feel your vibe and I appreciate it. Eh? It's, um, yeah, because it is how, it's how I like to work. I'm not that much of a business person, you know, I don't strategically follow it. I mean, it can sound corny, you know, but I am really just there for the right reasons. I just sort of, very early on, you're only here for 80 years. You know, no one's going to remember you a few hundred years after that. So, and everyone's going to have to work. So I might as well, I might as well do something that's going to leave a positive, put my 80 years to good service. So, that's, you know, yeah. really just asking that intention, that intention of wanting to improve people's lives as much as possible. And, you know, in the 80 years that I'm here. You remind me of Ken Lavander. He's in his fifties. He was a natural bodybuilding champion. The same guy, like business, business wise, what we like this. Like you're obviously incredibly high level specialist. Ken's the same, phenomenal. He's a peak performance coach inside HBF, and and we're trying to really prop up and do, I guess, the business stuff yeah. for him in, in sharing his message. And similar, mate, yeah. just wants to impact lives and just and obviously not to be rude to people, but there's very few older men that I really look up to and respect or see as a mentor. But you're one of them, mate. Oh, yeah. just, I cheer, bro. You know, but but yeah, like I'm I'm 38, but at the same time, I've yeah. seen thousands of 40 and 50 year olds, which is why the message I do paints a picture better than these men are like, yeah. in my life. But it's but then men who are living and breathing like self, but it's it's fucking awesome. Yeah. So knowing how your brain works and knowing that you there is a real neurological basis to grumpy old men, and just having that metacognition of knowing that you know the a part of a woman's brain that shrinks is part of the hippocampus, um, the posterior hippocampus. So that means that they start losing all their objects and can't buy glasses and stuff. Um, but men don't that doesn't shrink that's the part of the brain to do with mood regulation so there is a real basis for forgetful old women and grumpy old men 
And just knowing that makes you pull away from the maybe I'm just being negative because every generation says this generation of teenagers is the worst ever. You know, if you hear those old people's stuff coming out of your mouth, instead of just thinking I'm right, having that critical thinking to go, this could be the old member. Hey, I've got to cut us off and go straight away because it's quarter past 12. I've got to get through. Oh, yeah, board. of course. No, you're legend, mate. Right, Good talking to you, bro. Mate. We'll talk soon. I'll look at your mate. email. Yeah, Thank thanks, you so much. Cheers, man. Cheers, lads. See ya. Well, that wraps up another episode. And just as we wind this down, I want you to just reflect and think back through some of the golden nuggets, some of the revelations, some of the sore points, some of the things that might have hit home with you. And then just look at ways that you can apply a different set of actions to change your position, change your circumstances, change your feelings, and change the facts. These episodes are done with your best interest at heart, and there's always something we can get from that. Maybe it's not the first time, maybe it's the second time. We've had members listen to episodes four or five times, and then it finally clicks. But either way, I hope you got a lot of value out of this. And also, if this is something that you really want to solidify inside of your life, repetition is the key. You've listened to it. Write down your revelations, think about them, read them, speak them, believe in the changes that you will carve out in the action plan of those revelations to create change in your life and then share that. And when you teach, you learn the second time, right? So teaching and showing this to others you love and care about is the greatest way that you can remember and make sure you consistently learn and relearn what is it's true and what is it is important to you in your heart. Take care, have an amazing day, night, weekday, weekend, and I'll see you for another one soon. Cheers.